Well, we are rediscovering Jesus here, aren't we? I mean, God is moving in such cool ways. And uh, honestly, for us sometimes in leadership, uh, what we see in a service and how the Spirit is moving, we are discovering Him real time with you. He is always far better than our plan and what we've come up with. Can I get an amen? God is so good. And uh, for those of you that are new, because we have a number of new folks, uh, and we are just so glad you're here. Welcome. And uh, as uh, you get to know us as a church, one of the things is we sang about the gospel, right? The good news of Jesus and who he is. Uh, we like to celebrate every week if there are people that are finding and following Jesus. And so this lamp up here, if you wondered why is this random lamp up here, uh, anytime that lamp is lit, that means that at least one person came to faith in the prior week. And this, year, this week we had a number of people. And uh, so we're just celebrating, uh, you know, if that's you, you know, welcome to the family of God. If you're online, you know, we are so glad you're with us. Today, as we dive into his word, we're going to be in John chapter 18, and we're going to look at uh, the Jesus trial. And uh, the Jesus trial is something that we live in a day and age of, of trials, right? We, we've heard uh, maybe the phrase, the trial of the century, and uh, all of us probably, depending on our age, have a particular trial that maybe we remember when it was in the news, it was in social media. Some of us even recently have got consumed with trials in the news. Anybody maybe spend a little too much time watching court TV or watching stuff on social media, right? I mean, there's all of these trials and they gain a lot of attention. And, and as we look at this today, the reality is there's actually a, the trial, the trial of Jesus, that is the hinge point of all humanity. This is the trial that literally determines our possibilities and our future. And as we look at it today, I believe the, the, the angles on it, the way that maybe the word comes alive is going to help us to better understand it because when we look at a trial, we typically have opinions, we typically have opinions and, and our belief and what we think is actually happening, who's innocent, who's guilty, and all of that. There's an author from the past, G.K. Chesterton, that uh, he just writes in a very uh, creative way. And he has this quote about Jesus and about some of this idea. He says, suppose we hear an unknown man spoken of by many men. Suppose we are puzzled to hear that some men said he was too tall and some too short. Some objected to his fatness, some lamented his leanness, some thought him too dark, and some too fair. One explanation would be that he might be an odd shape, but there's another explanation. He might be the right shape. Perhaps, in short, this extraordinary thing is really the ordinary thing, at least the normal thing, the center. As we think about Jesus today, my prayer, my hope is that his trial brings us back to the center and what this is meant to be. Let's jump right into it in John 18, picking up in verse 1. Jesus, uh, if you've been tracking with us in this series, uh, in John 17, had prayed for you and I. He prayed that we would be set apart from the world, sanctified by the truth, sent by him, filled with joy, and that we would be one and unified with our brothers and sisters. From that moment, he now moves into what his real purpose on earth is and what that's going to look like. Picking up in verse 1, it says this, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. 
Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. I love this. They are there with weapons. There is no fear in Jesus. He is so courageous and so bold, he steps forward towards them. He says to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. They drew back and fell to the ground. Let me just pause there and explain a little bit of what's happening. He is, as we would learn in uh, some other other gospel, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in other gospels, we would learn he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is a place that he would go. He would meet with his disciples. He would pray. And in there, Judas knew he would be there. Now, Judas arrives. This Jesus has been teaching. He's been in the public square. He's been, you know, healing people, delivering people. He has not been hiding at any point in his ministry. Yet here they find him in this garden, and they come as if he is dangerous with an attachment of soldiers. Now, those atta- that attachment of soldiers were actually Roman guards. These soldiers were highly trained. They were very physical. They were experts with weapons. I mean, this was Rome. In an attachment of soldiers could be anywhere from 200 to three, 600 typically soldiers, even upwards of 1,000 depending on the situation. Most commentators and scholars think that the number was probably around two to 300 in this particular situation. So imagine this. Jesus steps forward and he says, I am he. He's doing this in the face of soldiers, a few hundred of them probably, with weapons and lanterns that are there to take him out and arrest him. Did you notice what happened? When he says, I am he, there is power that goes out from him. There's actually a similar, in in the Greek, there's a word dunamis that's similar to what's happening here. That word actually means that there's a power present that is supernatural. It actually said that it knocked them to the ground. Trained soldiers, two to three hundred of them, knocked to the ground by the power of Jesus identifying himself with clarity and authority because all authority rests on, in, and with Jesus. Church, are you there? As that happens, it's almost as if they're falling down to worship him, but we know that's really not what's happening. They're falling under, underneath because of the power of God. Now, this is so important to understand because as the story unfolds next, you will see that while Jesus has that power to take them out and deal with the situation, he doesn't do it. He actually holds that power and uses it the way God the Father would have him use it. Let's read on in verse 7. It says this, sorry, verse 6. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken, of those whom you gave me I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. 
the servant's name was Malchus. Now, I'm going to just pause there for a minute. Um, you know, Peter, who is usually the first to swing and fight and speak up and say something stupid. Anybody else relate to that? Okay. He swings at this man. Okay. Now, he must not be very good with a sword because he hits the ear. He doesn't take his head off. Okay? And, and there's this reality that Jesus is going to say in, in verse 11, he says, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink that the cup the Father has given me? And, and we learn in another one of the Gospels that Jesus actually restores and heals Malchus's ear. Actually, like right there, real time, shows again his power and heals his ear. Now, I don't know about you, but this is a deep moment of betrayal that is unfolding. And if you're taking notes, what we see here is when betrayal is present and happens, there's some responses that we can have. One is to fight. It's what we see in Peter. His immediate response is, I want to take up the sword and fight. Even though I'm not good with a sword, I want to take up the sword and fight. The second response is actually also seen in Peter, because as we read on in the story, we learn that Peter actually flees. That he actually denies Christ three times over the next few hours. So in the face of betrayal, how do you respond? Jesus is being betrayed. We live in a broken world, a world that often harms and hurts us. Moments of betrayal come. Sometimes we betray others. Sometimes we're betrayed. I don't know about you, but my natural inclination is to fight. As a kid, when I go back to some of the, my childhood uh, wounds and things that had happened in my life, there, there was within me this sense of, of betrayal. And, and until I began to allow the Lord to heal those, I tended to want to fight and be defensive and take control of situations. I didn't want to sit in spaces where God might have been saying, hey, I don't want you to fight, and I don't want you to flee right now. I want you to sit in here and trust me by faith that I'm going to do something good with this messy situation. I think this is a good word for us, because I think many of us maybe need to go to the Lord, lay down the fight, or come back from the fleeing, and say, Lord, heal me. Heal me, make me whole, do what only you can do. God is able. God is able. And it's the faith component that you see in verse 11, right? Because what does Jesus say? He says, put away the sword. Should I not take up the cup that the Lord has given me? God had a plan that was being orchestrated. It was going to be through really difficult circumstances, but Jesus, fully God and fully man, would begin to follow by faith through that situation. So let's read on and look at it, because the trial of Jesus is not an easy situation. It's, it's a bit messy. Picking up in verse 12, it says this. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus, and they bound him. First they led him to Annas, for, who, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl 
who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, this is the same Peter that just fought, right? He says, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now he's denying, now he's fleeing. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming them himself. Verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoke op openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But what if I said it, if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. If you're taking notes here, uh, Jesus is on trial, and there's six stages of injustice that are creating a pathway for justice. Actually, what we see here is a mistrial. There's a number of moments where what they're doing to Jesus is illegal by both religious and Roman law, that the injustice that Jesus is suffering was bigger than just even take, I mean, the biggest aspect is he took on the sins of the world, took on our sins. His, the injustice done to him is because of his great love for you and I. It was the only path towards real justice. And, and before we get into why this was a mistrial and why this was illegal and all of the injustices done to Jesus, I want to pull us back to the bigger picture. I want to make sure we understand where this is all headed. In Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 9, it says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That's you and me, whether we want to admit it or not. Scripture teaches we are all sinners in need of a Savior. It says, For one will scarcely die, for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God, say but God. Say it like you mean it. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is incredible good news. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. You see, we need to understand that Jesus loves you and I so much that he was willing to suffer unjustly that we could be justified by his death, his resurrection, and the covering of his blood. Some of us may need to just hear today, in the middle of a world filled with hate and division, maybe even some wounds and some hurts you're carrying, you need to probably hear as much as I do that you are loved. That the God of the universe loves you unconditionally, just the way you are. Can you hear that today? Can you receive that? In a world void of love, in a world that often causes us to try to search after love in all the wrong ways, God loves you enough that he sent his son, Jesus, to do what we couldn't do, 
to cover our sins, to be righteous. And he loves us enough that he doesn't want to leave us the same way. He wants to make us whole. He wants to free us from the bondages of this world. So what did he go through? What was so unjust? Let's look at this. There's six stages over 18 hours to his trial, which is essentially a mistrial and it's murder. And this is important to understand. Jesus' trial was not legal. Therefore, his death was murder. So let's unpack this. The first three stages of the trial were in the religious court. You already heard about Annas. They brought him first to him. He was the the patriarch, the one that they had served as the high priest for years. So they bring him to him first. From him, they move him to Caiaphas, who's the current serving high priest in that day and age. Now, I'm not going to unpack all of the scriptures there for you. They're there. They're listed. Matthew 26 is where we see uh, the hearing before Caiaphas. If you're online, our chat host is dropping notes for you. If you're here and you want these notes, just go to pathwayvb.com FYI, and it's all there for you. All right? From Caiaphas, they move him to a trial before the high council. These are all the other leaders that are going to weigh in on whether or not they think that Jesus is guilty of something. Now, as we look at that, there's a number of things about how they do this that lead to this idea of a mistrial. In fact, it was, uh, in fact, illegal. So how was it illegal? This is by their own law. There are eight things that immediately you can see in these six stages that show us that this was illegal. The first is there was no trial to be held during feast time. This is when Passover is, the festival, There should not have been a trial held. Secondly, each member of the court was to vote individually, not just a high council collectively weighing in. Third, with a death penalty, a knight had to pass before execution. They actually tried Jesus uh, in the the early morning hours, and they do not allow for that 24-hour period. Number four, the Jews had no authority to execute anyone. They were under Roman law law and rule. They had no authority to execute anybody. Fifth, no trial was to be held at night. This one, as I said, was at dawn. Six, false witnesses were sought rather than screening witnesses. Can you imagine in our courts today, you're presumed innocent until proven guilty. Part of what happens is we often would look for a jury of your peers. In fact, I have an 18-year-old daughter that just pulled jury duty. And uh, it'll be interesting to see kind of how that plays out, right? Because what happens is you're placed into a jury box, right? And you're questioned to see if you can be a fair and unbiased witness. That was, that's the process today. It was the process then. They didn't do that. They were looking for false witnesses to testify against him. Number seven, there was no defense for Jesus. It wasn't sought. It wasn't allowed. No defense. Can you imagine? Number eight, the accused was not to be asked self-incriminating questions. So those questions that are asked of Jesus were designed to lead him and to incriminate him. It was leading a witness, if you will. So all of these things paint this reality that this was an illegal trial. So they move him from the religious leaders to the next part, which is the Roman court. In the Roman court, there's a hearing before Pilate, Uh, You could see that in Luke 23 where Pilate first hears the case. And what you see from Pilate 
He's the Roman uh, governor of that area. And, and he doesn't want a revolution. He doesn't want uh, the, the Jewish people rising up against him because then he looks like a bad leader. Rome may come, come and get him and remove him or even kill him. And so he's afraid of that kind of situation. But he also, you, you, as you read the Gospels, you get this sense that Pilate kind of knew, like, this is a weird situation. He, he's trying to figure out why are they so upset by this Jesus because he doesn't seem to have done anything. So he moves him from his presence to Herod. Herod is the king at the time that is a, honestly a very fleshly and wicked king in that area. He, he's at a place in life where he is just enjoying all of the spoils, partying, you know, women, all kinds of act, activities that are just not befitting to a king. And one of the interesting things about him moving towards uh, Herod is Herod wants to see Jesus because in the middle of his lifestyle, he had been hearing reports of this Jesus who could heal people, who could do miracles, who could deliver people, who was even raising the dead. And so Herod wants to meet this Jesus because he's hoping that when Jesus arrives, he'll do like a party trick for him. Like he'll do something miraculous that will show him like the stuff he's been hearing about. And when Jesus arrives, he won't have any of it. He's not going to do that for anyone unless the Father is showing them. So Herod doesn't you know, want anything to do with him and says, all right, send him back to Pilate. And he ends up back before Pilate, who's now stuck with crowds in front of him and this hearing, the sixth stage of this trial. Let's pick it up in verse 33, and this is where we'll finish. In verse 33, he's now before Pilate. It says, so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. I want to pause right there. This is so important to understand. Jesus is very clearly saying that his kingdom is not of this world. So we live in a fallen world that has governmental leaders, has kings, queens, presidents, all of these officials and leaders, similar to Pilate and Herod in that day and age, that represent smaller little kingdoms that do not represent Jesus and what he's bringing to our world. See, Jesus' kingdom being not of the world is because he came to usher in the kingdom of God. He created everything that we see. This is a reality that they didn't want to deal with then. And as you'll see, they make a choice. And many of us, without even realizing it, make the same choice day after day. Choosing what's in front of us versus the kingdom that Jesus is bringing. So Pilate goes on. He says, so you are a king, verse 37. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into this world, into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? 
And this is an important moment for them and an important moment for us. I want to talk about this for a minute because we live in a world that is often today saying there is no truth. That actually has tried to redefine truth. We're on the backside of postmodernism. If you don't look, know what that term means, I don't have time right now. But we're on the backside of it. Postmodernism, in many ways, led all of us to this place of believing that truth is relative. That your truth and my truth, that there is no truth. That it's up to you to decide what that is. This is the world we live in right now. This is the world that Pilate lived in. And Pilate's actually one of the people to, that is supposed to determine what truth is. He's a leader. He's actually in a position where he's weighing out justice and truth. And he knows how corrupt he is and how corrupt all the leaders around him are. So he's asking the question, what is truth? Not popular then, not popular today. But Jesus is arriving and saying, I am truth. I am the one that defines truth what truth is in our world. This is so important for us to grab onto. So he goes on. He says, after he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and he told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, don't release Jesus, but release Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. So let's unpack this. If you're taking notes, this last bit is this, the Jesus trial, there's a king, the truth, and the choice. You see, the king is evident, right? Hopefully you're seeing this, that earthly kings pale in comparison to King Jesus. That King Jesus, capital K, is arriving to actually show us what life and his rulership was meant to be. Psalm 89.14 reminds us that righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before him. So what does that mean? In a world filled with injustices and unrighteousness, when we look to King Jesus, he is establishing what real righteousness and justice look like. And his love and faithfulness go before him and go before us. He is the king. He's also the truth. In John 14, verse 6, uh, Jesus actually said very clearly that I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In a world that wants to define truth, as I said, on its own terms, Jesus is saying, no, I'm the truth. I'm the king, I'm the truth, and I'm going to establish what that means, that your relationship with me and with the Father only can come through Jesus. And that's the choice. That's the choice that you and I are presented with. We, we have an opportunity when we look to this story to, to look even deeper. It said Barabbas. Barabbas was a robber. He was a thief. He was a revolutionary. He was a murderer. He was in prison because he deserved to be in prison. His name, ironically, no coincidences though, right, with God, actually means son of the father, lowercase. There's a father of this world, a father of lies, a father of corruption, the enemy, Satan. And Barabbas represented the son of the father. Jesus, on the other hand, is 
capital S, capital F, the son of the father. And actually what they're presented with is a choice. Which son and father do you want to be connected with? Which son and father do you want to follow? Which one are are you going to choose in this moment? And as you heard in the story, they chose Barabbas. They chose the one before them that they thought had the best chance to overturn Rome. Because all they could see was what was right in front of them. And I don't know about you, but I often feel in our fallen world that those choices aren't just a one-time thing when we accept Jesus. That these choices of which father will we serve, which father will we follow, which one will we choose to submit to are often in front of us every day. And that that choice is something that we need to to look at and say, I want what God has for me. Here's a picture from a movie scene depicting this. On the left, you have Jesus. On the right is this Barabbas. And I just wonder if this visual would help us to realize in moments which one we're choosing. You see, by them choosing Barabbas, that meant that Jesus would be condemned to death. Now, we know that that was God's plan, that that was actually for our betterment and for our good. God will use all things. But there are moments where I believe we're often choosing our flesh and the wrong king, the wrong son to follow. So let me ask you these three questions to close, these next step questions. One, how does the injustice of Jesus' trial reveal his love for you? As you think about what we've just heard, what Jesus was willing to suffer, I haven't even got in. Over the next couple weeks, we will look at what he went through physically, his death and resurrection through John 19 and 20. But he suffered all of this out of his great love for us. Secondly, have you chosen Jesus as your king and the truth? And that one hits home, right? Are you choosing to trust King Jesus and his plan, or are you fighting or fleeing from situations when he's saying, I want you by faith to trust me as your king? Is he your truth? Or is your truth coming from news or social media or other outlets? Third, will you come to King Jesus' table today and let him renew you? We're going to receive communion today, and as we receive it, We have four stations, one for each section if you're here in person. If you're online, hopefully you've been able to grab some bread or some juice. And as we come to the table to receive communion, we're receiving, as we grab the the wafer, the cracker, the bread, it symbolizes his body. His body that went through those injustices to provide us with a path to justice. His body that was beaten, placed on the cross, that was buried in a tomb, and three days later was resurrected again. As he hung on that cross, he bled, and the juice symbolizes his blood. Fully God and fully man, his blood was not like ours because his was sinless. It's the atoning sacrifice, the covering for our sins. Scripture teaches if we're faithful to confess our sins, that he forgives us 
He washes over us. He renews us. And so when we gather to receive communion as believers, we take that not just as a moment between us and Jesus, but a moment that we get to experience in the body of Christ. And today as we do this, if you're physically able and you're here on site, we're welcoming you to come forward. We've got prayer partners that as I pray will get in place. And you're just going to let the Spirit lead as we worship and praise. You can just come forward and receive the elements and receive communion as you're ready. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, please see one of us. Let's pray together. Scripture teaches if you confess with your mouth and believe with your heart, you will be saved. So we want to start there, then receive communion. If you're not physically able, you can just put your hand up and keep it up. And our ushers will come around and bring the elements to you if you're not physically able. The reason we're doing it this way is to follow King Jesus is to be a people that's on the move. And you see, if you just sit in a chair, that's one thing. But to actually get up, to physically walk, to declare through that that you're renewing yourself at the table as you receive communion. That's an act of faith. It's a small one in this room that I believe will lead to bigger ones outside of this room. Amen? So I'm going to pray over us, and then I'm going to invite you to stand, to sing, to pray. The kneeling benches, the altars will be open, and you can come up and receive communion as you feel led. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and praise you. We thank you for how you are moving among us. We thank you for your word. We thank you that, Father, you suffered those injustices to bring justice, a pathway for us to experience your forgiveness, your righteousness. We thank you that you are the king, you are the truth. We thank you that we can receive communion today. I pray that as we do, that your body and your blood, the symbols of what you have done for us, would wash over us, would renew us. May we repent of any sins and confess them. May we also experience in that your forgiveness, your renewal, and may we rejoice and celebrate with great joy at what you have done for us. We thank you that you're doing a new thing. You are doing a new thing in us, and we just invite you, Holy Spirit, to flood this place as we look to you and thank you for who you are and what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. The stations are open. You can stand and worship. You can come forward. Let's let him lead as we respond. Hey. 
God's love and His forgiveness available to us. And, uh, you know, as we were uh, just preparing this during the first service and yet again now, I just have this sense that some of you are, you're ready for that next thing. You're ready for God to do something new in your life. And and you're recognizing that there's probably a greater level of love and, and boldness, a greater level of faith that He wants to call you to to be the kind of people, because when he laid down his life, he was doing that, that as we came into relationship with him, he said that you and I would be his witnesses throughout the world when his power came on us. It's his power in and through us that we need to be who he's called us to be. And so I'm going to just take a moment of boldness. I believe that there's some of you in here that, that you're sensing that. And so I want to just invite you to come forward. I'm going to pray over any that come forward specifically as we close the service for that new wine, that new boldness, that new love. And here's what I've learned is there's probably at least 10 of you having the thought right now that that's me, but I won't move until someone else does. So I'm just inviting you to move, right? We'll sit in it for just a second. 
We never want to do anything around here that isn't led by the Spirit. You know, nothing that would be human or manipulation. I just have had this holy sense. It started actually yesterday with some conversations that I was in. That God wants to start bringing new freedom. That he wants to start doing a new thing in some of us and through us in our church. So if you're a guest, welcome. You're coming at a great time to see what God's doing at Pathway. If you're not a guest and you're a regular, it's time to open up to what he has next. Jesus did all of this. Not just that we'd have relationship, but that we would walk in his authority and power and change our world. So let me pray over each person that's up here. And then you got some new friends to meet all around you. All right? Father, we thank you for this moment. We thank you for each person online or in person here that is declaring by faith that they believe that, God, you have something more, something new that you want to do in their heart and mind in this season. Father, we all are, in many ways, as you were a victim of betrayal, of injustice, we live in a world that often wounds us causes betrayals and injustice and our own brokenness. So I pray first and foremost that each person standing would experience a new wave of your mercy and grace, healing them, restoring them, bringing wholeness, that you would cover them from head to toe with your spirit, your power, your peace, your joy, and that they would overflow with boldness and love to those around them. Father, touch marriages, touch relationships with kids and neighbors and homes and in our community. God, may you do a mighty work because you have new wine and new power through your spirit. And may we stay humble and may we give you all the glory. Father, we love you and praise you. Bless each person and may they know that something today in them has been blessed by their obedience and boldness coming forward. We thank you. We thank you, we thank you, we thank you. In Jesus' name, everyone said? Amen. 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 Well, talk to those around you. Get to know them. And uh, if you're a visitor, out those doors. We have a gift for you. We want to welcome you. Our band will continue to play if you want to linger. Let's be his church. Love him and love all people in your pathway. Go now and be the church.